Welcome to the Heathen History Podcast, where we talk about the good, the bad, and the downright bizarre in the history of the modern heathen movement. I'm Lauren. And I'm Ben. And this week, we're going to be talking about the early history of a movement that's been incredibly influential in modern heathenry, despite never getting all that large. It's always had the ability to punch above its weight. I refer, of course, to Theodish belief. Now, Lauren, what's Theodish belief? Theodish belief. Oh, sorry. Did I not pronounce it with the proper Anglo-Saxon intonation? So Theodish belief is a sub-subsect of heathenry that believes to truly practice heathen belief, you must reconstruct the social structures of that particular Anglo-Saxon era, or as the preferred term now is ancient British. There is some controversy right now, and I'm hoping to get a little more on that about whether or not the term Anglo-Saxon might be inherently problematic. I'm not going to go into detail because I don't have it in front of me. There's a whole breakdown among scholars, but I will try to use old British or ancient British. All right. But if I screw up, guys, I apologize. Okay. And... Yeah, what they talk about in Theodish belief, or used to anyway, is retro-heathenry, which does not mean that they wear bell-bottoms and put lava lamps on their altars. Retro-heathenry means doing things according to the ancient mindset, at least to the extent that it's possible to know what that was. And in fact, I've got an article up here by the founder of Theodish belief, who wrote back in 1992, quote, a retro heathen replights that troth, but with the difference that he insists upon historical religious accuracy in how he follows the old gods and concentrates on forging as valid a religious link with the ancestral heathen faith, for better or worse, as possible. So you reconstruct it according to the ancient lines as much as you can, And that goes beyond wearing ancient tunics and speaking old languages and things like that. It's reconstructing the social structures and the ancient mindset as much as it's possible to do that in today's world. Although I do have a mental image of like a heathen ritual, only it's a laugh-in wall, joke wall. Okay. Sorry. I've been watching some retro TV lately. It's a, it's a weird time right now. Okay. All right. Yeah. Retro heathenry would be, I don't know what, big chains and uh, leisure suits with buttons opened up on the front and... Uh, Ancient Viking ships buried in California? Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. Sorry. Yeah. that that Yeah. They also had that in the 70s, didn't they? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. So let's go back to... The early 70s, in Scooby-Doo style, and there's an artist living in the town of Watertown, New York. Watertown is the main town for Fort Drum, a large army installation defending our territorial integrity against Canadian aggression. 
I believe it's also home for the 10th Mountain Division. We do a lot of our you know, mountain training there. And it's described as a fairly conservative town, but with a large transient population. And there's a fellow living in Watertown, working as a street artist and guitarist in bar bands and a columnist for a weekly paper called The Town and Country, which does not seem to exist anymore. And even the Library of Congress doesn't have much information about it. The part of that could be because there is a major, major publication called Town and Country that's all about the rich socialites of like Britain and New England. Right. Well, this this doesn't seem to be that. This seems to have been a local weekly that probably never had much of a uh, circulation. But I can see how that would make it harder to find as well. Right, right. And our hero who's doing this is an artist and writer by the name of Thomas Germain. And I haven't been able to find a lot about his pre-70s career. He'd been raised Christian and abandoned it during a stint in the Navy. I don't know exactly when and where he would have served there. Beginning in 1967, he was basically a hippie. There was, you know, apparently in Watertown, New York, there was a surprising amount of love, peace, sex, drugs, and rock and roll going on. And he writes in some articles that he published in Theode magazine back in 1995, quote, In those days, I was a follower of gurus from whom I learned much until I inevitably found myself becoming something of a guru myself. I knew things like tarot and astrology and I Ching and even a little bit about runes and soon accumulated a street retinue of fans who pretty much followed me everywhere I went hearing my words of wisdom, getting their fortunes told, and such. It may all seem quite silly now, but in some ways one must understand these beginnings to properly understand the rest. So where Steve McNallan begins his career as a Goldwater conservative and John Birch type and military man, Thomas Germain is a hippie learning from an older gentleman who teaches him trance work and scrying and later takes a role in Theodish belief under the name Waldhera Saga. I'm not sure what his mundane name is. And that's half the fun. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting thing because I find as a woman who came to Ethanry from other pagan beliefs, especially Wicca, it's interesting that this this is the part that I don't hear talked about a lot that He's really kind of the first male historical leader type figure in heathenry that I see that comes out of that more new age pagan thing versus coming out of, you know, more like McNallan or Elsa Christensen mm -hmm. from a much more conservative Viking, ooh-ah Viking thing. Yeah, McNallan really did not like the summer of love and all of that tree-hugging stuff. And Edward Thorson, not so much. That's really not the kind of thing that's on offer in suburban Texas at the time. But yeah, Garmin comes from a background that's very much into early 70s New Age stuff, learning scrying and trance work and, you know, 
tarot, I'm sure, and astrology and I Ching and all of that. And he makes contact with the local Wiccan coven and is very rapidly initiated. Apparently, the high priestess had the revelation that, hey, this guy has to be your high priest. So he was initiated rather quickly on Halloween 1971. And Thomas Germain took the craft name Merlin Solomon. Kind of an interesting little fusion of uh, traditions there. So I'm going to just pause for a second and knock something out here. To our young or newer heathens who are listening to this podcast, I know there's several of you, if someone decides that they want you to join their group and there's no time of getting to know people, they want to oath you in or initiate you immediately, that's a red flag. I'm just going to put that out there from experience. Right. So just, you know, keep that in mind. Right. Well, Germain would later write years later that the high priestess was, quote, a power mad egomaniac who was wantonly ruining many of the personal lives, marriages and such that she as our spiritual leader, high priestess and eventually witch queen had in her charge. In fact, she seemed to purposely be, as one bright female coveter put it, creating emotional turmoils and feeding on the energy. Sounds like an old story by now, of course, but this was 1971, when the world of Wicca was young and green, as were the people in it, and nobody knew anything. So I'm going to toss a little bit of information about Elgard Wicca out here. All right. So Elgard Wicca was founded by Mary Nesnick otherwise known as Dionysia. She was an initiate of both Gardnerian and Alexandrian Wicca and founded her new tradition called Algard. And it very much is interesting because it's Alexandrian, it's Gardnerian, but Nesnik says in her own writings that about 50% of it was directly from Crowley. And it was very much a very eclectic because it, it was part Gardnerian, part Alexandrian, part Far East mysticism, part Crowley. I said it right that time. You should be proud oh, of me. Oh, very good. However, there's some sources that say she was actually expelled from Gardnerian tradition. And her particular form of Wicca was controversial because it was specifically LGBTQIA rejecting to the point that you have Eddie Bazinski, who is a pretty prominent Wiccan and archaeologist who founded Welsh traditionalist witchcraft, was rejected from her group for being queer. So that's just kind of a little background on that tradition. It was considered at the time to be a not really a mainstream tradition. It never really caught on. There were maybe at its peak five or six Algard covens period. So it wasn't, he was not part of necessarily a influential group, although he could claim being a lineaged Wiccan. So something that I want to bring up is, you know, he is considered a lineaged British traditional Wiccan by that regard. I am also a lineaged British traditional Wiccan. I was initiated first degree from an lineage coven. Now, what does a lineage coven mean? For those who didn't come through traditional British witchcraft, a lineage coven basically means that 
people in that coven who are initiated in that coven can trace initiations essentially back all the way to Gerald Gardner, either directly through Gardnerian covens or through Alexandrian covens because the founder of Alexandrian Wicca was initiated by Gerald Gardner. So this is important. And remember this later. It's a thing like you should be able to know your lineage. I don't know it anymore, but I used to could tell you, you know, I was initiated by this person who was initiated by this person who was initiated by this person who was initiated by Doreen Valente, who was initiated by Gerald Gardner. Ooh. But the key I want to bring up here, and it will come back, I promise, to be considered a British traditional witch, you must be a lineage initiation. If ands or butts or hickory nuts, that's the like primary descriptor. You can practice whatever. I mean, I'm still considered a lineage British traditional Wiccan, even though I haven't practiced Wicca since Clinton was in office. But this is important to remember, and it will come back. So I'm just going to leave that here. All right. And we will come back to it, I promise. All right. I'm not entirely sure what Thomas Germain's lineage is because there seems to be some confusion on the dates. And he says in one of his 1995 articles that even he's a little fuzzy. So there's a few things that I have not been able to pin down. He was initiated into Wicca on Halloween 1971. Other sources say he started out as Algard, but Algard was allegedly not founded until 1972. So I'm not entirely sure what that first coven originally was, and I'm not entirely sure who was in charge. There's a book out, one of the first surveys of neo-paganism and the occult from a fairly friendly or at least neutral standpoint is a book called In Search of Witchcraft by Hans Holzer, who actually went out and talked to a lot of leaders and watched some rituals and presented an account of this new thing. By early 73, the coven in Watertown was led by someone named Gail Steele, who was apparently a real character. She worked as a singer in a local restaurant and wore her witch cape everywhere, swanning around Watertown, and went by the craft name of Delandra Elandra, which makes me wonder if she knew Rosanna, Rosanna Dana. Sorry, there's another 70s reference for you there. But I'm not sure if she was the priestess who initiated our hero, Thomas Germain, now Merlin Solomon, or if it might have been someone else. There seems to have been a change of leadership and I haven't been able to break down exactly what went on. So I'm not sure who the high priestess was, who was such the power-mad egomaniac, but that's certainly a personality type that we've encountered before, right? Oh, that's never, never happened. So interestingly, I looked up Mary Nesnick while we were sitting here. Right. And I find this story to be plausible, if only because Mary Nesnick was from that area. Okay. And I'm looking at it a little more, but she passed away in 94. But, I mean, it's very plausible that this could have been the first group, if only because it's geographically, it checks. Like, 
Okay. Geographically, Watertown to it's the other side of the state from where she died, but I don't have a necessarily like a huge thing. And also, I will say that History of the Craft in America has her starting the group in 71. Okay. So there's some discrepancy. I'm going to lay this out here. I don't see Nesnik was initiated by Alexander Sanders. I'm going to say that it's a very, from what I can find, it, it, it tracks. Okay. All right. So he may have been initiated into the original Algard Coven. Or one of, one of the original Algard Covens. There was also a group in Boston. Okay. So it's entirely possible that there were multiple groups that Nesnik was running. But yeah, it checks. I think geographically it checks. So we'll, we will, we will trust that. Okay. All I have to go on is that in Hans Holzer's book, he says in late 1972, there was someone leading rituals in the Watertown Coven whose name was Morgana, which really does not narrow it down very much at all. Okay, so that would have been uh, Morgana Davies. Oh, okay. Uh, Morgana Davies, who had that group and then went to the Baltimore Coven, and her high priest was Hans Holzer. Oh, okay. In the Baltimore Coven. And there was an Algar Coven there that was led by Carolyn Casa, who passed away in 1998. I see. Like I said, I, I went to a Wiccan seminary. I am an initiate. I can hunt this stuff down a little bit, but all right. So regardless, it's looking very possible that he was part of one of the original Algard Covens. We'll go with that. All right. Okay. But unfortunately, the high priestess was supposedly, allegedly deeply in love with drama, creating turmoil, feeding on the energy. And in the early 70s, okay, October 72 is when Time Magazine runs a cover story on the occult as a substitute faith. And it's one of the first big journalism breaks for the emerging occult and new religion subculture, everything from Satanism to New Age to some of the early Wiccan and neo-pagan groups at the time. And you younger readers may not remember this, but back when we only had three TV networks and a limited number of magazines uh, doing, you know, international news, and we didn't have CNN or Fox or all that, you know, young whippersnapper cable stuff, Time Magazine was a big deal. Whatever Time had on its cover was what a sizable fraction of Americans would talk about. So this is right at the time when neo-paganism is starting to break into public consciousness And right at about that time, there seems to have been an event known as the Witch Wars, which seems to have been an enormous falling out among Wiccan leaders, uh, particularly in the Northeast. Thomas Germain slash Merlin Solomon actually crowns his high priestess Queen of the Witches. And this apparently does not go over very well with people who are saying, I didn't know we had a queen. I thought we were an autonomous collective. So, yeah, this ends up causing a major shakeup in the coven, and Merlin Solomon is left a little disillusioned with the whole thing and kind of disappointed with the Book of Shadows, which he has had to copy out by hand, which you had to do back in those days, 
and found it very unimpressive. And he starts asking the questions, if Wicca is really the ancient English religion, what are we doing worshiping Diana, who's Roman, and Cernunos, who's Celtic? You know, maybe this is not really as ancient a religion as we think it's been. So, interestingly enough, according to this same history of craft, the craft in America, which is from Pathios, the Book of Shadows for this particular tradition was essentially the Gardnerian Book of Shadows. So they were using the very, like, super... And by the way, it's freely available online if you want to read it. It's super like 40s and 50s. Like it's you have scholar Jim Baker who started who studied the aftermath of this witch war. And um, his kind of conclusion on all of this was that Wicca, to quote, as we have it, is constructed entirely out of known literary and social materials available in the 1940s and 50s which Gerald Gardner didn't reveal to Sanders. But yeah, it's a little drama there. But regardless, if you want to know more about this whole thing, you should go listen to our two-part Gerald Gardner and Wicca episodes. Always be plugging. <laughs> okay. You know, that, that makes me wonder, since Watertown is an army town with Fort Drum nearby, it makes me wonder if in their rituals they didn't do the chants in a proper military fashion, you know, Dark some night and shining moon, dark some night and shining moon, hearken to the witch's rune, hearken to the witch's rune. Earth and water, air and fire, earth and water, air and fire, work ye unto my desire, work ye unto my desire. Sound off, earth, air, sound off, fire, water, sound off, earth, air, fire, water, spirit, blessed be. What do you think? Uh... Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Stranger can, things have happened. Yeah, it's it's just a nice coincidence that you can set an awful lot of that Book of Shadows poetry to the tune of the uh, Jody marching cadence. So yeah, now you know. Now you can impress people at your own coven meetings. Yes, not you personally, Lauren. Any of our listeners. Anyway, so. Now that he's crowned his high priestess queen of the witches, Merlin forms an advisory council to the coven, looks up in a dictionary what's an old word for council of advisors, and he finds the Anglo-Saxon word and calls it the Witan. This is some supposedly in May 72, although again, my sources weren't entirely consistent on the timeline. The coven then implodes. The Witan is left with nothing to do. And in September of 1972, young Merlin and his girlfriend, whose name is only recorded as Nimu, turn the old coven into the American Society for Astrocycle Research, or for short, Amerisyche, A-M-E-R-I-S-Y-C-H-E. Amerisyke. Amerisyke. And uh, they put out some very well-respected albums, but didn't really make it big until they released Empire back in 1990, which had that hit Silent Lucidity. Uh, wrong. Wrong. Oh, oh. Oh, right. Sorry. That's not Amerisyke. That's Queensryche. I, I always get yeah. them confused. So this organization was interesting. They, too, advertised in Fate magazine, which was apparently the place to advertise your pagan group in the 1970s. 
Yeah, I've got one of their ads from uh, March of 73. They were running very small classifieds that read, Amerisyke is for those daring few ready to risk all in the name of truth. Information, Amerisyke, 141 Arsenal Street, Watertown, New York, 13601. So interestingly enough, Coven Wichan mm-hmm. is actually still a somewhat a growing concern. Sayax Wicca came out of Coven Wittan, and according to a Sayax Wiccan author, there's an interesting quote here about it from Garmin Lord, according to this author. Okay. If I had to identify one difference between Theodism and other paths, it's the strong sense of tribal identity. So he saw that at that time, a somewhat of a crossover between when he was forming Theodism and Sayak Swicka. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, he'd end up being closely associated with a major Saxwiccan group, but we'll get to that in a minute. So Amerisyk sponsors the Coven Witan, or at any rate, the most of the members of one are members of the other. And the idea between Amerisyk is that they've embraced what they call the Shattered Diamond Theory. The idea that all of the world's wisdom and spiritual pathways are fragments of a greater, more perfect whole, which maybe they could reassemble into the original whole and uh, make the Skeksis and the mystics uh, come back together and reform as the original Urskex, but only the Gelflings could do it. No, wait, sorry, I'm, I'm getting confused again. This is not the Dark Crystal we're talking about. Okay, now I'm going, earth my body, water my blood, and this is all your earth, fault. Okay. Sorry, sorry, I've just earwormed you. You did. Okay. And yeah, Hans Holzer's book, Witches, actually presents an interview with our young Merlin Solomon in 1973 and calls him a sincere seeker after hidden truths, a young man who wanted to use occult powers to fight against ignorance and falsehoods in the mundane sphere. If his attempts at mustering these powers are somewhat blunted by the large area he seeks to cover, his thrust is nevertheless in the right direction. So I would compare Merlin Solomon to Doctor Strange, except we've got another Doctor Strange coming into the story, and I don't want to get people confused. I just want to like vaguely gesture at the world and say, yeah, it didn't work. Right, right. So the Witch Wars pretty much wreck the pagan scene for a while. Merlin breaks up with his girlfriend. Amerisyke is put on the shelf in September 1975. And our hero goes through a long spiritual drought, a time when he suddenly realizes he's not making any money. He's not been successful at anything. The gods of the Wiccan tradition that he has pledged everything to don't seem to be particularly helpful. And on the full moon of June 76, in a uh, fifth-story apartment building with no money, he invoked the Wiccan lord and lady and demanded better reward for his service. Nothing happened, and on the 4th of July, 1976, he renounced them and severed all ties with the Wiccan deities as, you know, as his tradition understood them. And not knowing what else to do, he had looked up some god names from 
actual Anglo-Saxon England and invoked Woden and Freya and said, Woden, if you live, I don't know who you are, but I give you leave to come in peace. And lo and behold, they showed up. He had a vision of Woden and Freya, Frigga, as we'd say in Old Norse, walking into the room. As he puts it, I caught a flash of a fine lady in a white gown and a big figure in battle harness who came up to me and wrapped me in a bear hug, then sat down next to me and said, what can I give you? He says he didn't know if he wanted to be obligated to him. And Woden says, look, we are not talking about your religion here, but my religion, and my religion is gift giving. And if you will not accept my gift, it could go ill for both of us. Now, tell me, what can I give you? And Merlin says, how about a job? And Woden says, done. Anything else? And Merlin says, a good job. And Woden says, did you think that I would give you a bad one? And frankly, with Odin's reputation of cutting some rather nasty deals in the sagas, it was probably a fair question. But in fact, within two days, he's got a job offer. He's always been a graphic artist, very good one. And I'm not sure exactly what job that was, except someone told me at one point that he was a cartographer for the state, a map maker. Dude, that's an awesome job. Yeah. So he basically vaulted from starving street artist and bar band guitar player into, you know, well-paying middle-class job that would enable him to buy a house. So, and all he had to do was say, whoa, ten. Whoa, 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 ten. Whoa, 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 ten. Da-na-na-na-na-na. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it was something like that. Wonder if he ever played that song. Anyway, so he not only gets a job, but he meets a female companion who he reminisces as having a smile like Monica Seles, the uh, tennis star of a generation back. We know her only as Alfwin, and she's a senior majoring in anthropology at Syracuse University. She had actually come to some of the rituals because she's thinking about studying Wicca and kind of realizes that these people are not really being, you know, very serious. She doesn't find most of them worthy of study, but she connects with Merlin and she gets him hooked on research methods. Merlin slash Thomas slash Garmin, as he was about to calling himself, very smart man, but apparently only had a high school diploma at the time. And she starts lugging crates of books from the Syracuse University library and he finds that he can't get enough of it. Uh, he discovers the joys of actually doing real scholarly research on ancient religions and learns everything that she can possibly teach him. So that seems to be where the Theodish appreciation for scholarship comes in. His coven Witan becomes the Witan Theod and starts trying to distance itself from Wicca, albeit not with complete success, and Thomas Germain goes from being Merlin Solomon to becoming Garmin Lord, the name that he is known by ever since in in heathenry. And I like that 
they kind of were very experimental in the beginning. They kind of tried everything from swine sacrifice to berserker gangs. And he described them, though, this is kind of the first time this word comes up, shamanistic retroheathenry. Right. And I'm just going to say I highly encourage informed experimentation in heathenry because that's the only way that we're going to grow. Mm hmm. Right. Apparently, he was. They were getting to the point where he was starting to seriously freak out the neighbors with the practices that they were they were getting up to, crafts and uh, reconstruction things like that, playing around with swords. I forget exactly when they did the first one, but they were apparently experimenting with animal sacrifice, uh, which would later become very much a big deal in theodish belief. They would develop techniques for offering live swine, live pigs, to the gods. Garmin's also still playing gigs in the local bars and meets a fellow musician that shows him a copy of The Runestone by Steve McNallan in 1977. And that's his first inkling that there's a bigger heathen scene than what he's doing in Watertown, although it's still not very big. McNallan, I've think would still be in the army at about this time. And I don't think by 77 may, well, I'd have to look it up. This is roughly, maybe roughly the time he starts, he comes back from his military service, but certainly there's not a very large network of runestone subscribers at the time. Allegedly, they also make contact with Elsa Christensen, who comes down from Toronto watches a ritual and decides she doesn't really want to do that because it's, quote, too complicated. McNallan would have come back in 76. 76. Okay, so I guess McNallan is back in the States and just beginning to build that real-world network that would grow into the AFA. Yeah, in Scotty Snook's book, 76 would have been when it went from the Viking Brotherhood to the A-Free-A. Okay. I'm not surprised Christensen found his stuff too involved, mostly because all of the descriptions that I've read from Christensen's rituals are that they were never very religiously involved. She very much defined that kind of heathenry in how I have talked about it being a politico-religious movement, emphasis on political. But yeah, I, it, that doesn't surprise me at all. Right. She said in an interview late in life that she really didn't have a head for that religious sort of thing. Virtually all of the content of the Odinist, her newsletter that I read a bunch of issues of so that you don't have to, was political commentary. Very little about how you might actually practice Odinism as a religion. Although there was that one issue that most of it was devoted to an Odinist analysis of Star Wars. If you remember, that's the one where she praises it as a great display of something called Aryan Theotechnics. Uh, yes. Yeah. I, too, have read this. Mm hmm Right. So in 79, Garmin Lord puts uh, the Witten Theode on hold because he is going to pursue a side career as a freelance writer and illustrator. He founds Viking Staff Magazine, which, while is not explicitly Theodish, it is heathen-informed. And a description of it in Instauration Magazine in September of 81 says, if you're of the Northwest European extraction and into the culture and folk religions thereof, 
perhaps you should look at a copy of a new publication, Viking Staff, the magazine of the armchair adventure. An eccentric but fascinating combination of all manner of fact and fancy. Serious discussion and off-the-wall humor aimed at people who are plain, just interested in things, all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. That sounds like a bad podcast description, but I'll leave that there. Right. Well, it's significant because Instoration is a white nationalist conservative publication at the time. This doesn't mean that Garmin would have shared that predilection, but you know he is plugged into that network because they get a copy of his magazine and publish a review a review of it. It's one of the few reviews of it that I was able to find, uh, although he was advertising it in the Runestone at the time. I've seen ads for it. And so that lasts for a couple of years. It comes to an end in 1983 when Garmin loses his job. According to him, this is because he had stopped worshiping the gods and kind of put the Wheaton Theode and his religious practice on hold. Uh, he felt that he was serving them in other ways, but evidently they wanted something else out of him. He did resume worship in 1985 and promptly got his old job back. So now that's a thing. Interestingly enough, around the same time in 82-83, he meets Edward Thorson, who was in Valhalla, New York. And in 83, Edward is already drawing up plans for a network of heathens of all stripes, which he was thinking about calling the Ring of Troth. So Garmin is offered the chance to help organize, but he steps back. Right. You will learn very quickly as, as we go on here. All of these people are connected. You laugh at me. They were worse than me. Mm -hmm. There weren't many of them. Remember? Right. This is all going on among maybe, you know, fewer than 10 people are really trying to lead this movement. And you also have to remember that everything is happening in the pre-internet days. And I remember the pre-internet days, and I still don't always remember how it was when, you know, if you wanted a book, you went down to the mall and hoped that uh, B. Dalton or Walden Books would have it. And if they didn't have it, you might not ever find out that it even existed. You know, there were, I guess, cable TV was just starting to come in, but still your main source of news was whatever your magazines and the local newspaper put into it. And just making contact with other groups was a very chancy thing. If you were wanted to worship the Germanic gods, you know, you might spend years trying to figure out how to do it. And if you were persistent, maybe developing your own tradition and never know that somebody else is doing the same thing in the next state, or it might take years for you to find that they exist. So a lot of this is just small numbers of people who are still trying to build that network, and it's kind of a hit and miss affair. You know, now you can type into Google, does anyone still worship the Germanic gods? And bloop, 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 you'll get a whole bunch of links of people who do. But that simply didn't exist at the time, and it could be an almost random matter 
as to whether you'd find out about these other groups. And it took a long time for that network to be built. And while it was being built, a lot of small groups were building up their own local practices, which would end up, you know, funneling into the greater network of heathenry as it grew at the time rather slowly. So just a very different way of communicating and gaining information. And even though that's the world I grew up in, it seems strange now that I've gotten so used to being able to Google anything I feel like. Well, even when you and I were new heathens of the early 2000s, you were still Mm -hmm. very dependent on directories and sites like Witchvox and groups like the Troth to find. I mean, that's how I found you was Witchvox to find other heathens because it wasn't like not everyone had a website. There was no social media. It's so vastly different now than it was even 10 years ago. Right. And the other thing is that when you've got these local scenes, like what Watertown is doing, you know, if you did plug into one of those, you might rise, you know, almost meteorically, you know, Thomas Germain goes from being, you know, the local hippie to high priest and, you know, leader of a large coven very, very rapidly. You see this in several cases. Some of these groups grow extremely fast and people get catapulted into leadership positions that they're not always prepared for. And you also have a lot more infighting between local groups and local factions. And that's not something that I think you see quite as much. It would certainly be a problem in the early history of the Troth. And certainly a problem in the history of the Watertown community, which we're coming to, but it's not something that I think you see quite so much of now, and we've really become a lot more, I don't want to say homogeneous, but a lot of the old battle lines have just completely been erased and, of course, replaced by replaced by new ones. But yeah, it was just a very different way of gathering and processing information about the community at the time, I think. And so in March of 1988, uh, Garmin meets Gert McQueen, who is still nominally Christian and in fact a deacon, but super eager to learn everything that he can teach her and filled with ferocious energy. And so she's like, dude, 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 you got to go public again. Right. She apparently would just sit at his feet and absorb everything and she'd go to his, by this time, huge library and devour everything. And she became very much a public advocate and even activist for heathenry. He writes in one of his articles that she's not a super intellectual, but she's always been a loyal thane and, you know, always ready to defend the interests of him and his theode. And uh, she, by the way, makes contact with the Troth and joins it. She makes contract with Edward Thorson and joins the Rune Guild. And right about 1990 or so, she starts up a letter-writing campaign in the pages of the Watertown Times. She writes some letters attacking Christian privilege, and this, of course, gets – you know, 
local sweet old ladies to write letters saying, no, no, Jesus is the God of love and he is the way, the truth, and the life. And she writes, oh, yeah, then why did it? And there's this running gun battle for two years in the pages of the Watertown Daily Times in the letters to the editor column. Incidentally, she republishes a lot of these letters in Iduna, and I've read a lot of them, and frankly, they get a little bit on the tedious side, but she is ferociously out there ready to you know, repel any perceived offense, and uh, sometimes Garmin has to help her out, and he writes letters under his mundane name, and I'm not entirely sure what it accomplished, but she is... Okay, Charles Darwin was in poor health for most of his life, and the fellow who really went to all the meetings and pushed to get his ideas accepted in the 1860s was a guy named Thomas Henry Huxley, who was affectionately known as Darwin's bulldog, and Gert McQueen is kind of Garmin's bulldog. And I I mean that with respect. I mean, I know... Calling a female person a dog sounds like I'm being misogynistic, and I'm not. But she is certainly a very fierce defender and one who almost drags Theodish Yelefa, which is what Garmin is calling it now, drags it into the public eye and plugs it into connection with the wider heathen world, which Garmin had not done before. My original alma mater, Louisiana Tech, is the Bulldogs. But if she would have been a lady texter, because they don't call the females. Right, the right, bulldogs. of course. Right. Okay. Let me see. I'm pulling up some of the letters that she wrote. I've got here a copy of uh, Iduna 24. And uh, yeah, this is a semi regular column called uh, True Gert. And yeah, she writes a letter and someone writes back, Who is your God, Gert McQueen? My God is alive. My God is all-powerful, all-present, and all-knowing. My God has control of all things. Dot, dot, dot. Someday you will meet my God, Gert McQueen. Will you be ready? There are a lot of people praying for you. And as you know, I'm praying for you is evangelical Christian talk for go earn yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You ever had that? Someone says, I'm praying for you, and you can tell what it means is... You know, F you. Yeah, she writes back in support of freedom of religion, writes, you know, the writers of our political documents were religious men. These political documents are just political. The reference to God is in a rhetorical general sense. This country is not a theocracy, which is a government with a religious head in charge. If a certain kind of Christian wants to have that kind of authority, I suggest they go somewhere else and found their own theocracy. So she's passionately advocating for religious freedom, and a lot of people in Watertown are praying for her. And yeah, this evidently occupies a great deal of her time in the late 80s and early 90s. I'm not going to lie. That is one thing that I miss in the modern era is the the skill and the pure bulldoggedness there's the best word for it of letters to the editor mm-hmm. like that was some some of the most entertaining reading in the newspapers which for those of you who don't know that was when they printed the news on paper and it came to your house every morning or evening right right 
I remember the like seven month long letter to the editor fights about the broom closet opening here in Little Rock in the Dim Set, the Arkansas oh, really? Democrat Gazette. Yeah. So there's abs. It's, it's fun. I mean, like, you know, now I can go and just spout off what I think to everybody on social media, but this like letters to the editor were an art. There was an art to that. Mm-hmm. And certainly one that Gert McQueen had mastered. So in August of 89, Garmin Lord is rethinking things and he founds an umbrella organization called the Richa spelled like the word rice, but it's Old English for kingdom. He figures someday there will be a king, but he's not really ready to do that yet, so he takes the title of atheling, or noble, and this is when the system in theodish belief of ranks, or aurungs as they call it, begins taking off, where you come in as a thrall, and yes, that is the word for slave, so as a provisional member, you do the heavy lifting. You don't come in, Ben. You're saying it wrong. You sell yourself in as a thrall. Oh, sorry. Uh, right. you, you legitimately sell yourself in. Okay. And everybody waits to see once you've internalized the values of the theode. And once that has happened, you can, as they say, cheap your abradeness, i.e. buy your freedom, and you become a full-fledged member and then you can rise in various ranks. I don't remember what the entire system of it is, but there's a there's a ranking system, and this is about when that starts. Within the Richa, Garmin's leading a group called Yering Theod. Yering literally means descendant of harvest, but they translate it as sprout of the sprout, because so many times there's been this new growth and it gets chopped down but a sprout comes from the old growth and grows anew. And then two of Garmin's old associates, a guy named John D. Black and his wife Terry, lead a second group within the Richa called Moody Hill Theode. Now, John Black and Terry Black were originally had the name of Sagest and Wuldorheat, but they changed their names to Eldorad Lord and Tunhofa. Tunhofa, by the way, is the name of a common weed called ground ivy, which is actually uh, used to be used for flavoring ale. Eldorad is presumably the car that the guy was driving, right? Driving an Eldorado? Yeah. Or something like that. And cool note here, just to toss this out here, but Black, Eldorad, was actually named American Tattoo Artist of the Year in 1987. Right. He ran Dr. Strange's Tattoo Parlor which was on the second floor above a bar called Smokey's Tavern, which he also owned. He had been an electrician, kind of an itinerant uh, itinerant worker, settled down, and by this time actually owned some property and uh, was doing fairly well. And yeah, he was apparently American Tattoo Artist of the Year in uh, 1987, and he was known as Dr. Strange. So that's why I hesitated to call Garmin Dr. Strange, because Eldorad was Dr. Strange. And Moody Hill did incredibly well for itself. They supposedly grew to between 50 and 100 members, although not all of them showed up at any given time. And Eldorad and his family were operating several businesses. Thunholf's mother, Paulette Bennett, ran a, a small publishing firm, 
that published Eldorad's fictionalized autobiography under the title The Witch of Birchard Street, which one of these days I'll track down. For a time, they actually bought a farm and were going to use it for outdoor rituals and freaked out the neighbors when they had a bonfire and cookout on the land and everybody thought they were worshiping Satan. That was a whole nother set of frightened letters to the editor in the Watertown Daily Times, who I'm sure was having great fun with all of this. So in 1991, drama, like drama. Mm -hmm. So Moody Hill invites some journalists to come to their ritual, which is uh, taking place in Eldorod's attic. So October 6th. Yeah, he'd apparently fitted it out as a, must have been a big attic. He fits it out as a big ritual hall. Yeah. And yeah, the Watertown Times runs a story on October 6, 1991. Heathens meet in nude ritual. It's super Wiccan. They're sky clad. There are cakes and ale and watchtowers at the corners, although they pray in Anglo-Saxon and they have lore classes. So mm. in this article, Eldorad claims to be one of several kindreds in the American church of Theodish Gelfla. Mm, uh, Yelefa. Yalefa, mm -hmm. and the American Church of Theodos Galefa, that he founded in 1986. He alleges that he chartered it under the American Malabar Church and is in court now to establish the American Church of, to establish his other church as a separate entity. Uh, Gert McQueen, because Gert McQueen, has a lot to say about this. So on June 25th, 1992, there's a thing out that's Germanic heathen says rival wrongly uses Theodish name. So you have this long drawn out falling out between Garmin and Moody Hill in fall 1991, allegedly because Moody Hill doesn't like Garmin's retro heathenry and wants something more dumbed down and friendly and wickish. So a big smear campaign starts against Garmin aimed at not just Garmin, but for some reason we're going to go after all the Ossetry organizations. So, right. Yeah. Eldorad is writing letters to other Asatru organizations trying to paint Garmin as evil, and it actually doesn't work. By this time, he's known enough in the Asatru community that um, people like the uh, Asatru Association will can at least call him up and try to get his side uh, so they don't get drawn into these witch wars. So then they start a smear campaign in the local press. And it pretty much made it impossible to be an outpayment in Watertown. And uh, this all ends in 1992 in September when uh, Moody Hill leaves the uh, Richa and now we're kind of back to nothing. Right. So, yeah, the Moody Hill Theod leaves. And I'm not sure what happened to them, although Garmin writes somewhere that they ended up losing or having to sell a lot of their property. They don't seem to have prospered since leaving. And Garmin is pretty much down to nothing, but he's still got Gert. And Gert has joined the Rune Guild, joined the Troth. She's teaching Rune classes at the local library. And, of course, taking flack from people who are afraid she's teaching Satanism or something like that. And naturally responding to this with angry letters to the editor and articles in the local paper. And keep in mind, to contextualize this, 92, we're still in the satanic panic. Yeah, for those of you who weren't around at the time, there's this 
fear in the late 80s and early 90s that there is this cabal of Satanist pedophiles that are abducting children and ritually abusing them. So, yeah, this whole Q thing is not even original. We've kind of been through this before. We also went through this in the 1800s, too. Right, right. (laughs) People's careers get ruined, and some people end up going to prison unjustly. West Memphis 3. Right. And there was a time when being smeared with the faintest amount of accusations of being pagan might leave you open to charges that you were a Satanist who was trying to entice children into, you know, a whatever. Well, never mind. But uh, but yeah, this is the kind of thing people had their kids taken away from them in divorce cases over accusations like this. And we will have a much more in-depth episode coming up uh, soon-ish on the Satanic Panic and specifically on a incident during the Satanic Panic that greatly influenced modern paganism, at least in the South. So coming up, it's going to be cool. Yeah, and it led to one of the great pop songs of the 80s. It's the Satanic Panic Monday. Oh, oh, oh. Wish it was Sunday. Oh, oh, oh. Cause that's my human sacrifice day. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. So Gert McQueen is like balls to the wall heathen. I love her. Like already, like I'm, I'm down with this. Like the people like this in heathenry are some of my favorite people because I'm kind of like this sometimes. Right. Well, she gets a reputation rapidly as the person to go to if you need something done. Edward Thorson and James Chisholm, brilliant men, great scholars, have the organizational skills of a dead herring, as Kveldolf Gunderson said of them. Gert actually goes out and visits them for Ostara, back when the Troth had only about 60 members and was the nucleus was in Texas, in 1990 and again in 1991. And uh, apparently in 1991, she came out early and she had to spend a couple of days cleaning house for them because they were living together in a bachelor pad that just had piles of books and papers everywhere, you know, strange life forms unknown to science growing in the fridge. They were a couple of completely disorganized and feral bachelors at the time. And they weren't always really good about getting, you know, mail answered and things like that. If you wrote to the troth, sometimes it might take months before you heard anything back. Diane Ross did an awful lot of the heavy lifting in the very early days. But still, the troth had really big dreams at the time and a shortage of responsible people who could actually get them done. And Gert rapidly became known as the person who would get shit done. Uh, So by February 1992, she's actually appointed an elder, and she's on the reed, which in those days was entirely appointed. We didn't elect reeds people at the time, allegedly mostly there because she's a contact with this Theodish belief thing, which has been growing pretty well, and they want to have representation from the Theodish on the reed. And it's about this time that Prudence Priest is appointed steerswoman of the troth, And the troth begins a period of very rapid growth. There's growth in the troth. Yeah. That was poetry. I don't know. 
like Gert McQueen just sounds like my kind of person because honestly, when you need stuff done now, people call me. So I, yeah, she is on this, but 1994, December, the glorious revolution happens in the truth. Actually, that's not till 95. Oh. But yeah, it's 95 when Prudence Priest finally gets turfed out. Priest had been... The problem is a lot of what I know about that time I know from reading the writings of, well, Gert McQueen and Garmin Lord. We'll have all of this in our show notes, of course. And it tends to be... It's one perspective, and I hesitate to take it all at face value but allegedly Priest was basically running the troth as an extension of her own Norse Wiccan coven in San Francisco. And, you know, members of that coven were making decisions about troth policy, even if they weren't members of the troth. Uh, that's alleged. And she was, you know, tearing down some of the organizations. She ended the steer, the not the steer, the uh, steward program for a while, fired Nan Halloran as leader of the elder training program, which between you, me, and the wall was probably a good thing in the long run. But she had a reputation of ruling very high-handedly and not being very accountable and playing power politics that really should not have been played. And this ties in again with the think that you know, as I said before, heathenry at the time was still very regionally focused you had leaders that had definite power blocks and were known to call them, you know, to support them in various struggles with each other. And there was a type of infighting of a type that I have seen dwindle. It may never be completely gone, but it has calmed down quite a bit over the past 20 years or so. Uh, but it's certainly very much at its height in... 93 and 94, and by December 1994, Gert is out of the troth. The publisher of Aduna, Will West, who also published the first edition of Our Troth, he's at the helm of the publishing program, but he doesn't last very long. And things get pretty disorderly up until June of 1995, which is when Prudence Priest goes, and some major changes are made to the bylaws. So, around this time, because of the troth, Garmin and Gert become aware of uh, identical twin brothers from north-central Missouri named Barry and Terry Canote, who have been developing their own Anglo-Saxon heathen tradition, taking the names of Swain and Eric Wodening. And uh, right. now we're getting to the part of history of people I know, so that's exciting. Right. We've, we've met them. Yeah. I've... I've met them on multiple occasions, Swain especially, because they're not too far from us. And they used uh, Swain eventually moved to Dallas, Fort Worth, actually. And so we had a fair bit of contact with him and his uh, ex-wife. Mm -hmm. And they kind of take Theodism to the next level, I feel. Yeah, they have been publishing in Iduna for some time. And Eric Wodening had been working on a manuscript... He's allegedly doing a lot of commuting between Columbia University and his farm, which is out not close to anything in particular, somewhere in the greater Moberly metropolitan area. 
and he shows it to Garman, who publishes it under the title Beyond Good and Evil in February 1994, which is the same time that Garman launches Theode magazine, which does very well for some time. And the Wodenings get taken into the, uh, the Theodism, and he puts them in charge of an educational program called Wensbury King's School. And according to Garman, they're really the first people to do serious thinking about heathen ethics, heathen morality. According to Swain's own history of Theodish belief, they're the ones that introduced Sumble to Theodish belief. So we have them to thank for that time when we finally staggered off to bed around three in the morning. And when we got up for breakfast, they were still at it. Right. You remember that, I trust. That was what, 04? Yeah, sounds right. Remember, your symbols last 24 hours hours a day. day. I want to be Theodish. And then that group ended up forming their own Riche under that name as well, I believe. I will say, as far as I'm aware, both brothers have since left heathenry. I don't know much about Eric, but Swain is now a Christian, a Catholic, I believe. Last I, I checked. Yeah. Swain was writing a blog for some time called The Return to the Lord that hasn't been updated for a couple of years, so I don't really know where his head is right now. Eric has written a couple of books on pop culture and seems to be commenting on that a lot, and I don't know what his religious orientation these days is either, but they were very important in the development of theodism They'd been working on their own Anglo-Saxon heathenry in isolation from everybody else for several years before they made contact with Gert McQueen and Garmin Lord. So they had done a lot of thinking about this on their own, and they'd made contact with wider heathenry through the troth. And it's about the time that they come in, I've actually got a copy of Swain's own history in a book he wrote called Theodish Yelefa, The Belief of the Tribe, and I'm holding it up to the mic right now so that you can see it. And according to Swain, quote, the Wodenings brought to Theodism the bloat outline many Theodes use today. They also introduced symbol, a rite known to Ausatruar, but one for which Theodesmen would become known. With the book Beyond Good and Evil, the Wodenings gave the concept of weird, which the Odesmen were already familiar with, deeper meaning, and introduced the concept of orli, or orlog, however you want to pronounce it. Other metaphysical concepts were also introduced at that time, such as the idea of the tribe as an enclosure or inengarth, the difference between the sacred and the holy, and ideas on good and evil. They also elaborated on the idea of worthing, the thought that a heathen must be constantly striving to improve his or herself. Some of the ideas the Wodenings had bothered from authors such as Edward Thorson, others were the result of their own research. So as far as the theology that makes up, I guess, classic theodish belief, an awful lot of it comes into theodish belief with the Wodenings or at least the history written by one of the Wodening brothers says that it did. 
There, there might be a little bit of self-servingness in here. It's hard to be sure. But by about 1995, theodism is pretty much all of the pieces are in place. They have a rank system. They have this focus on lineage. They're starting to found other theodes that don't necessarily cling to Anglo-Saxon heathenry, but to other traditions, other tribal nations, and we'll talk about them in a forthcoming episode. They've worked out a lot of this theology, the idea that you are your deeds, uh, the focus on weird and orlog and worthing and things like that. The rank system is in place. And in 1995, Garmin would be raised on a shield and be acclaimed sacral king of the Theode. So Garmin becomes an actual king to roughly 100 people in 1995. So I just want to point back to a couple of things we talked about earlier. Lineage. Mm-hmm. So to be considered Theodish, you have to be in a lineage Theodish group. And you have to have either trained under Garmin Lord or be trained by someone who was trained under Garmin Lord or so on, so on. Okay. Well, that's that's true if you're high Theodish. Garmin would later publish a book called The Way of the Heathen, which told you how you could be Theodish but not be in the lineage. You would just be greater Theodish rather than high Theodish. And for at least a time, there were some greater Theodish groups out there. In my experience lately, that's changed. Okay. But you still have lineage, right? Mm -hmm. You have a rank system as if you're going to come in as a thrall also known in Wiccan circles as a dedicant. Okay. And move up the ranks. I see so much carryover from British traditional Wicca into Theodism in those regards. Mm-hmm. And it, it still is somewhat a growing concern, though I would argue that, like I said, there's more. And uh, we're going to continue this by diving in to another Theodish big name heathen. Named Dan O'Halloran. Yeah, we get to do a Dano episode. That should be interesting. The first openly heathen politician in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Also the first openly heathen politician to get kicked out of office for being corrupt in the U.S. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that's we'll, – we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Yeah. But I think it's hard to overstate how much impact – Theodish belief in general has had on heathenry in general, not so much because Theodish belief was ever very big. I think even at its height under Garmin as king, they probably never had much more than 100 people who were full bore, you know, high Theodish folk. But the ideas that they put out there and that at least in the early 90s they were publishing in Iduna – their ideas of trying to recapture the the ancient heathen mindset, the respect for scholarship, even if sometimes it goes a little bit wonky, the um, tradition of uh, you know learning the old languages, you know, and even you know composing prayers and songs and poetry in the old Germanic languages, you know, like the affair we went to where the bloat was carried out in old Frisian, 
which was a little bit confusing for everybody but about two people that were there. You remember that, Lauren? Uh, not only that, I remember a very long, drawn-out conversation I got into on my previous podcast mm-hmm. with uh, Rich, who actually did that ritual, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were walking away going, okay, I think I just worshipped somebody. Yeah, I, I think. I don't know what happened. Right. But a lot of that comes into heathenry through theotish belief. And so you have a number of heathen groups that I've known who have never been theotish and might not claim to know much about it, but they'll talk your ear off about the web of oaths or the gifting cycle. That's another big theotish concept that got very big in the wider heathen movement or that talk about Inangarth and Utangarth and all of that, or talk use the catchphrase, we are our deeds. All of that, or at least a heck of a lot of it, comes into mainstream heathenry by way of theotish belief. Their fingerprints are all over the stuff that we do, even though that's not always realized. Stop talking about me, because <laughs> I'm that heathen. <laughs> okay. Hey, it's all right. I, I have been known to be irreverent on this podcast, yeah. but there are things that the Theodish have done that I could just never see myself doing. I don't think I was ever seriously tempted to try to join. I considered it once and then kind of decided, no, some of this stuff is just not me. But there are things that they have done that have been very influential and I think very good Certainly, I like the appreciation of scholarship and the analysis of, you know, concepts from, you know, the old lore. And they certainly made a lot of people think harder about what it really meant about, you know, are we just going out and being, you know, Christians with a different God name and different taste in clothing and ritual? Or can we really do these rites and live in ways that are closer to what the pre-Christian heathens would actually have done and felt and thought. And I don't know if we ever can know that, but it was an awesome question to ask. And these were the folks that were asking it. And I really do think that specifically Eric and Swain were the catalyst for this. I think their books especially were definitely, I would consider them in the grand scheme of things to be the most influential Theodish to come out of that time period. Right. Uh, They publish prolifically and intelligently. And while a lot of their scholarship's kind of out of date right now, I think I probably own almost everything that they've written just from being heathen for so long. Right. So, yeah, even though they're not heathen now, and, you know, Swain has certainly put all of that behind him. And Eric, I, I just don't know. He seems to be writing mostly about old TV shows. We certainly owe them a debt for having shaped heathenry in general into what it would become, you know, even among people who've never been theodish or even know what that is. A lot of the theology that we put forth ultimately comes from them. And, you know, I think it's important to know that and give credit where it's due. I agree. All right. So what else have we learned, Ben? Let me see. We've learned that 
Doing sky-clad rituals around a bonfire is likely to freak the neighbors out and lead to uh, quite a lot of letters to the editor in the Watertown Times. We've learned that they were doing naked theodism in the 80s. Yeah, well, it's interesting. The, that description of the sky-clad rituals that Moody Hill was doing, that dates from September 91. They would have stopped doing that about the time that Moody Hill left – and certainly by the mid-90s, by the time that the Wodenings are in, as far as I know, they were not doing anything skyclad. I have never seen a theodesman without his clothes on, and between you and me, that's probably a good thing. I don't want to see most people without their clothes on. I'm good with it. True, true. I, I tend to concur. But... Yeah, I'm not sure if the Wodenings are quite responsible for that, but there was a huge change in their ritual praxis between about 1991 and 1995. And it's in that period that you get the changes that would make theodism as we know it now, I think. Yeah. So another one of the things that we've learned is keep your clothes on. Yes. I mean, except when you're taking a shower or something like that. Yeah, well, you know. Keep your clothes on in public. All right. And I guess we've also learned that putting small classified ads in Fate magazine can sometimes lead to great things. No kidding. Okay. All right. Anything else or should we wrap this one up? I think we're good. So uh, if you want to know more about our show notes, you want to see our sources or just find our social media, you can go to our website. That's heathenhistory.com or heathenhistory on Twitter, Facebook, Patreon, if you want to help us feed our editor, whose name is Robin Lance. He is amazing, and we sound so much better with him. Our theme music is called Happy Viking. It's by Roller Music. That's how it goes, right? Dun, 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 dun. I don't know. It's playing. Under, the bed is probably going to start playing under us at any second. So, Okay. All right. And so for the Heathen History Podcast, my name is Lauren. And I'm Ben. Wassail, y'all. y'all.